Um, ladies and gentlemen, friends, um, great pleasure to welcome Kurt Ford to talk about one of the great issues of our time, fraud in capital markets, uh, about which you know is a great deal, not because it's engaged in it, but Kurt is a good personal friend, a good friend of Oxford, a good friend of this institute, of Exeter College, of the Rhodes Trust, who is a distinguished Rhodes Scholar. Uh, and I think, sparing his blushes, that he's also a great public servant. I think he has pursued a powerful public interest in promoting the integrity and transparency of capital markets. Uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome you back to, to welcome you back to the RAI and all the Good afternoon. Of course, I'm honored to be here to talk about this persistent aspect of the human condition. And I'll start my remarks as would any member of the Securities and Exchange Commission by saying that nothing I say is to be attributed to my law firm or my university. Um, I've been teaching now for four years, so I've become extraordinarily comfortable lecturing students and asking questions and not knowing the answers. <laughs> what you're going to hear about is, of course, fraud. Uh, while some speakers may speak, seek to keep your attention with PowerPoints and cartoons, uh, you won't see any humor today. Um, what we have really is a very grim situation without innovative solutions. And uh, frankly, for everything you hear about since about 1980, it's going to be based upon personal experience. Uh, I should be done in about 30 minutes, so if, some, like some of my students, you start to yawn or nod, um, I understand that that does not mean you're bored. I understand that that's just a brain reaction. Uh, we're going to talk about fraudulent conduct and the efforts to combat it and the protection of our capital markets. I think what you'll find is it's a chess game. It's a history of moves and counter moves, and like Mercury, fraud avoids capture. And accordingly, legislators who combat fraud may very well feel like Sisyphus. And perhaps the only people who really benefit from it in the private sector, other than the fraudsters, are lawyers. Um, what is fraud? Uh, fraud is the intentional deception of others. It is regrettably a thriving business. What are the capital markets? Um, the US capital markets are part of the global capital markets, of course. And Books are written about this, but consider them the resources available and the transactions between participants involving money, securities, and commodities. The amounts are large, very large. Uh, by way of example, Citigroup clears $3 trillion in transactions a day. The market for one type of security, known as the auction rate security, was $330 billion in 2008 before its market froze. Another type of security which has contributed to our current financial crisis, the mortgage-backed security, which we call the MBS, and its derivative products, $4 trillion in these securities were issued in a three-year period. The daily trading of currencies on the foreign exchange market is $5 trillion. The amount of contingent liabilities existing at any one time under what are known as swap agreements exceeds $300 trillion a day. 
It's a lot of zeros. Uh, the amounts are staggering and they are more than the budgets of many, many countries. So the ability to regulate fraud in the capital markets, it's, it's challenging. Uh, I tend to think of it analogous to an aircraft carrier. Uh, it takes an aircraft carrier six miles to alter course one degree. I think of the capital markets as a thousand aircraft carriers all within sight of each other. What is money? And historically, it's gold, it's silver. And again, books are written about the subject, but suffice it to say today that it's an intangible representation of the consideration needed to pay for goods or services based on the trust in the sovereign printing the currency. How complex are the markets? Very, and increasingly so. As just one example, although securities are essentially investments of money in common enterprises to generate profit, they're defined in 27 different terms in our securities laws. And with the recent Dodd-Frank Act, one of those 27 terms is defined in 97 pages of single-spaced text. Complexing the landscape are the trading in securities, which has been evolving into, for some time, high frequency. Uh, driven by computers and algorithms developed by mathematicians to react to events and trends. Uh, commodities, you might think of them as oil, wheat, corn, tangible things. But for decades they've included synthetic products, indices, piles of securities for which there really is no ownership of the security, but rather a mathematical bet on both sides. Uh, why do we need the capital markets? Uh, obviously to promote trade, grow economies, foster invention, create jobs, and hopefully prosperity leads to more security and ultimately more peace in the world. But the opportunities for fraud abound. Uh, we have an annual meeting for the senior lawyers of financial institutions. And a couple of years ago, the frequency of fraud was so high and the number of attempted prosecutions by the U.S. Attorney in Southern District of New York uh, prompted him to remark that if he'd known there were so many representatives of financial institutions present, he would have brought more subpoenas. <laughs> uh, dark humor, of course, but it's consistent with the prevalence of fraud in the capital markets. So let's ask ourselves some questions. Um, why do people cheat? Okay. Uh, I look first to three of the seven deadly sins. Greed. I want more. When asked how much was enough, J.P. Morgan said, just a little more. <laughs> Envy, I want what he has. Pride, I deserve to have more wealth. And following pride comes arrogance. I am superior. The rules don't apply to me. I won't get caught. If I get caught, I can litigate. And then there's the thrill of being on the edge of the law. There's a theme in all of these, and essentially it's self-centered, narcissistic behavior. Next question, what are the consequences of fraud? Simple, fraud undercuts trust in the system. Next question, why try to stop it? Why not caveat emptor, buyer beware? The answer to we're all adults, we should be able to live with the consequences is, 
Society wants to promote trust, ensure confidence in the system. And society also needs to punish violators. So here's the big question. What should be the role of government in stopping it? Related question, what should be the role of private enterprise? So let's just start and look back 100 years in the United States. Uh, 2011 marked the 100th anniversary of the first state to adopt anti-fraud statutes. Uh, they are known as the Blue Sky Laws. And the first place to do this of all areas was Kansas, the home of Dorothy of the Wizard of Oz. Why Kansas? Uh, the reason was citizens of Kansas were investing in citrus groves in Florida and oil exploration operations in Texas. And it turns out that the promoters were selling land that didn't exist. So it was the blue sky that the citizens of Kansas were buying. So Kansas and the rest of our 50 states decided to adopt statutes because their, their citizens didn't have the resources to understand the investments thousands of miles away. And when there was injustice, there needed to be a remedy. That was terrific. But it took 20 years in the Great Depression to catalyze our federal government into action. And the causes of the Great Depression have been debated, but it is generally agreed that first state chartered banks have been packaging and selling investments and enterprises and bank funds to their customers. Investment banks are creating their own trading companies to invest their capital. Speculation investments increased across more than 20 different stock exchanges in the United States. And the prices went to unsustainable valuations. And the bubble burst. And when it did, it wiped out massive amounts of capital investment. So our Congress responded with the Securities Act of 1933. And for the first time ever, if one wished to sell securities to the public, you had to file your documents with the Securities and Exchange Commission. You had to go through a period in which questions were asked and answered. And you had to have permission to go forward with the offering or be exempt from registration. And there is the first out for why we may have some of our fiscal crisis problems. The intent of the 33 Act was to promote disclosure of material information, which, believe it or not, the word material uh, to me, just means important. But you will find thousands of words written about what is material as people debate whether or not some disclosure was or wasn't significant in their investment decision. Today, the test is anything upon which a decision to purchase or sell and would influence the price of the security is considered material. The 1933 Act also imposed strict liability, not negligence strict liability for any misrepresentation in the documents filed with the SEC. And it also imposed liability on the members of the boards of directors, the underwriters, and the accountants. Subject to then having done enough homework, which we call due diligence, to say they couldn't have unfiltered what was misrepresented by the issuer. And the 1933 Act also imposed the requirement that once you were registered, you were now stuck. You had to file a report every three months, once a year, reporting the current financial condition. And you had the opportunity through a Form 8K to disclose anything important that you wanted to disclose. The 33 Act was followed in 1934 by enhancing the powers of the SEC 
and creating the statute that we today use most in combating fraud. In 1938, the United States passed the Glass-Steagall Act. That was there to bust up bank holding companies and to separate commercial and investment banking activity. And because many securities are issued by trust companies, bless you, the Trust Indenture Act of 1939 was passed to regulate their conduct. And in 1940, Congress adopted two more statutes to regulate the issuance of mutual funds and imposed a fiduciary duty on the advisors. That process took about 10 years, but at least by 1940, the federal government was a player. After World War II, there was a period of prosperity, but of course, securities fraud continued and the private bars sought to fill the gap. In 1947, one federal district court said, we're going to let a private citizen use this 1934 statute to sue an alleged fraudster. It took 24 years for our US Supreme Court in 1971 to say that's the law of the land. By the 1980s, private securities litigation had become a lucrative industry. Uh, investors, lawyers could now sue an issuer, their boards, their underwriters, their accountants, and for a time, the lawyers, whenever there was a significant drop in the price of the security, and say whether it was true or false, that it was due to financial fraudulent reporting. At the center of this new industry was what we call the United States Class Action Plaintiff Lawyer. And they could sue not just for the loss of one investor, which might be thousands of dollars, but they could sue on behalf of all the shareholders. And because the US does not follow the English rule that a losing litigant has to pay its opponent's costs, many suits were brought based upon marginal factual support with pretty much impunity. And the consequences were many. Uh, there's a saying, one lawyer in town, nothing to do. Two lawyers, too busy. <laughs> so the plaintiff's lawyer was matched by what we today call big law. And uh, my firm has over 250 lawyers engaged in some form of securities litigation. This is an example. And it's big business. I think the last poll I saw had 50,000 lawyers in the United States engaged in securities litigation. The risk to the issuer became exponential. You've already heard about the monetary exposure. The board members were also exposed personally for the same liability. The underwriters and the accountants had deep pockets. The litigation was protracted. The costs were immense. Uh, 10 years ago, I'm at one major insurance company, and we all work under budgets. We compete for the work. And the budget for the average defense of a securities fraud claim through a trial was $10 million. I've since sent bills. One month I sent a bill for one case to one client where the bill exceeded a million dollars. Uh, I worried, but I was happy when it was pending. <laughs> Another consequence is that the companies had to learn how to report these contingent liabilities. And when they reported them, a new creature appeared, a hedge fund. The hedge fund arbitrage, the litigation risk. And today, hedge funds in this country, and now following some leadership here, 
the United States, hedge funds are actually engaged in what we call litigation funding. And we've seen the best and the brightest from the American bar, as they've retired, uh, become advisors to these funds. So what we've created now is a very, very large issue, an industry. And of course, it can't exist without insurance. Got to have insurance for the company. Got to have insurance for the members of the boards of directors. And the power, I'm sorry, the pressure is so large on the company that 99.9% .9 of these cases settle. And I've actually been at the forefront of transactions. And there is a line item in the budget. And it's called litigation. And you could have the Pope on the board of directors. And there would still be that line for litigation expense. And I've been in front of the chancellor of the Delaware Chancery Court who has said, I am sick of your lawyers coming in with settlements agreeing upon what the fee should be. But the chancellor has no discretion when there's no alternate transaction to approve. So lawyers get paid. No one's laughing so far, and it's gonna get worse. Uh, in the 1980s, uh, we had Ivan Bosky did a little bit of insider trading. Uh, Bosky was a prominent arbitrator who sought to make profits based, based upon the delta between what an event might have on the price of a security. He received information about buyouts and junk bond offerings um, in exchange for profits from his arbitrage trades. Uh, he made a lot of money off of Drexel Burnham Landmarks deals. He went to prison. Dennis Levine was a managing director at Drexel and one of Bosky's biggest tipsters. Uh, Bosky ratted out Levine and Drexel and Michael Milken, the so-called junk bond king. Levine went to prison. Milken was indicted on 98 counts of racketeering and fraud and sentenced to 10 years, later reduced to two, fined $600 million, and was permanently banned from the securities industry. But he was still worth billions and became a philanthropist. The insider trading ring involved a man named Martin Siegel at Kidder Peabody. He admitted that he had sent information to Bosky. He went to prison. Uh, there was a lawyer at the eminent law firm of Wachtell Lipton who was also sentenced to a year in prison, fined and disbarred, and then was reinstated in the 90s and became the CEO of a medical devices company. Uh, the buzz on Wall Street was shocked. Not that it happened, but that these extraordinarily successful 0.1%ers were caught. And how did the rest of America react? Well, I don't know. But I do know that Oliver Stone and Hollywood immediately glorified this conduct and used Bluski as the inspiration for the famous Gordon Gecko character in the movie Wall Street starring Michael Douglas. And Americans flocked to see it, to watch the Wall Streeters their toys, their falls from grace, like yours, while eating popcorn and chocolates. And then the movie got remade. And more recently, Hollywood's given us Wolf on Wall Street. So what does that tell you about the human condition? We all know what the deadly sins are. But this becomes entertainment. And think about the famous quote of Gecko in the movie Wall Street, quote, greed is good, close quote. Bosky actually said he did at a commencement address at the University of California School of Business in Berkeley the prior year. And what he said was, quote, greed is all right, by the way. 
I want you to know that. I think greed is healthy. You can be greedy and still feel good about yourself, end quote. Uh, just think about the juxtaposition of that statement with the seven deadly sins. Uh, thinking about Bosky telling the embryonic leaders of the business community in the United States from his August position of commencement address this information. But greed is all right. Uh, should we really be surprised that some of these same leaders are caught in fraudulent behavior? Um, how far are we? Oh, I wax. Uh, during the 80s, we also saw fraud and the expansive use of junk bonds, uh, and it contributed to what we call the SNL or savings and loan crisis, during which 100 federally insured savings and loan banks failed. And until that time, those banks were restricted by the federal government on the interest rates they could offer. And, but because commercial banks were doing more profitable work than the savings and loan institutions, our Congress responded by deregulating savings and loans institutions and allowing them to make investments in consumer and commercial loans. So to maximize those returns, many of them invested in speculative real estate ventures and junk bonds issued by Drexel Burnham. Uh, the investors were not informed of the risks. Uh, the investments went belly up. So did the S&Ls. And the government was left to cover the depositors' huge losses. The FDIC, we call it FIDIC, uh, then sued those involved in the process, including three large law firms who collectively paid over $100 million to avoid trial. In 1990, Drexel collapsed. It was around this time that the plaintiff's class action lawyers changed who were their representatives. And instead of it being one of you who had a security who dropped 30% in value in your retirement account. It was suddenly CalPERS, the California Pension Fund for Teachers, and the Public Employee Retirement System, and other state and teacher pension funds. And these became institutions who were now challenging Wall Street and their clients. The number of actions continued to reach, and by 1992, Senator Pete Domenici remarked that the surge in securities litigation has reached epidemic proportions. So Congress took a number of steps to try and control it. I'll spare you the details, but they passed an act that said you just can't bring any lawsuit and call it fraud. You have to plead in detail what the fraudulent conduct was. Well, to avoid those heightened requirements, plaintiff's lawyers sued in state court. So Congress went and passed a law that says, you can't do that in state court. Well, I've been to the US Supreme Court on whether or not you really can do it in state and federal court at the same time. So creativity in lawyers continued. Uh, you may recall that one of the causes of the Great Depression, and I'm sorry, the response to it was the adoption of this Glass-Steagall Act to break up the bank holding companies. Well, that got repealed in 1989 to allow commercial banks, investment companies, securities firms, and insurance companies to consolidate. So in 1938, it was broken. In 1989, it was allowed to come back together. And when signed into law, our Treasury Secretary said that this statute, Graham Leach Bliley, is a system for the 21st century and historic legislation that will better enable American companies to compete in the new economy. In other words, bigger is better. 
did we forget about the Depression? And what's been the consequence? We now have the too big to fail banks and even insurance companies who can deal in securities. 2000 was a memorable year. We also had NASDAQ dropping from 5,400 to 1,000 points in three months. And that uncovered a regulatory problem and fraud. <coughs> it turned out that the banks had research analysts. And it's supposed to be what we call, forgive the term, Chinese wall. And it's an ethical barrier between research, which is given out to the bank's customers and members of the public if they can get it, and investment bank, which is there to develop client relationships and take embryonic companies public. It's supposed to be separate. When you get your flyer from your bank and it says, we think XYZ stock is a buy, it's supposed to be based upon an analysis of fundamentals. What was alleged, and perhaps was more true than not, was that the research analysts were actually sharing the fees that the investment bankers were making. And the most egregious example of this was an analyst in Manhattan, who instead of making a $250,000 a year salary in 1988, made $18 million that People weren't happy with this, of course, when they learned it. So in addition to government prosecutions and investigations, uh, one of our larger financial institutions had 8,600 lawsuits against it by its customers at just one point in time. The NASDAQ bubble burst was followed by the demise of Enron and WorldCom. You may have heard of something called Tyco, Dennis Kozlowski, who's famous for his $3 million bathroom paid with company funds. Accused of stealing $120 million from the directors of his company, stealing from the employee loan program, and misrepresenting the value of his company's stock to boost its price while he and his CFO sold $575 million worth of their stock. Um, the 2000 to 2005 also uncovered the largest stock lending fraud in time, masterminded by an international arms dealer and resulting in the failure of a major clearing firm and the largest bailout at that time. Uh, we also had prosecutions of mutual fund families for market timing, revenue sh sharing, uh, allegedly involving kickbacks. And we had people like Martha Stewart, I am Chloe. She was sentenced not for insider trading, but to five months for, in prison for perjury. But just think about it. Why would somebody risk all the productive work that they had done to cover up a $60,000 profit? Well, again, we saw more prosecutions, not just federal, but also the state attorney generals, the state agencies, expansion and more private class actions. In 2002, we passed Sarbanes-Oxley and said management has to be responsible for the financial statements, personally. So the CFO and the CEO had to sign. And interestingly, the number of securities fraud lawsuits started to decline. And maybe that was because people were being more attentive. Uh, okay. 2005 to 2007, a new player in securities fraud, 
the plaintiff's class action lawyer. The most prominent firm at the time doing this was called Milberg, Weiss, Burchad, Lerock, and Schulman. They were found to have been paying people to be representatives to start class action lawsuits. Uh, it was, the story was revealed in Barron's. Uh, it's a really interesting one. It uh, essentially started off with a lawyer in Cleveland whose uh, girlfriend had called the police because he had allegedly battered her. And when the police arrived, she said, don't hurt him, he's a crack addict. That led to investigating the landscape and in the gardener's shed were a couple paintings, like a Monet. And that led to finding out that there were people in California who were in the art world who needed money to buy paintings. And that led back to a safe in Milberg Weiss's office where the individual would come into the office and receive cash for serving as the representative supposedly of all the shareholders of the company. Uh, not all of them, but most of them went to prison. Um, has fraud in the U.S. capital market stopped? Of course not. Uh, the triggers for the credit crisis of 2008 were primarily, I think, declining interest rates and fraud. Uh, essentially, declining interest rates and the use of adjustable rate mortgages encouraged the housing boom. The value of the houses were inflated. The, the foreclosure rate became less. That in turn masked the risk of using subprime loans, which were then packaged into mortgage-backed securities and sold to the public. These securities were then packaged further into leveraged securities known as collateralized debt obligations, or CDOs. The rating agencies who were paid to assess and rank this risk for $4 trillion in mortgage-backed securities in 2004 to 2007. When housing prices declined nearly universally, homeowners couldn't refinance their debt, interest rates shut up, and they defaulted. And the MBS market collapsed. And when that collapsed, another form of securities market collapsed, the auction rate security. Because the banks who held the mortgage-backed securities had to, what they call mark-to-market their value. And now they didn't have cash. And they wouldn't go to the auctions to support the auction rate securities. So the auction rate securities paralyzed. The investors in the auction rate securities were the controller of the Fortune 500 company who needed to maintain $20 million a month for payroll. Suddenly that money was a liquid. Universities and endowments, they all had their money frozen. And this resulted in, of course, massive litigation and litigation between the insurers and their clients. Uh, the story continues. Ultimately, among the consequences was the demise of two of the most powerful Wall Street firms, and a third which had to be acquired to avoid its doors. Bear Stearns collapsed in March of 2008. It had been operating at a 35.5 to 1 leverage ratio. All of its assets were <coughs> virtually illiquid and potentially worthless. When testifying before the Senate Banking Committee, former Bear Stearns CEO Ace Greenberg testified unapologetically, quote, excesses did occur. So did I know things were getting a bit out of hand? Yes. Was I as vociferous as I should have been? Maybe not. But it's hard to turn off the spigot 
when things are profitable. Lehman fell in September 2008 due to huge losses in lower-rated mortgage-backed securities while operating at a 30.7 to 1 leverage ratio. And the falling dominoes continued. Something called a money market fund. It's supposed to always be worth never less than 1.00 anything. It's called, they'll never break the buck. The founder of the first one of these said that new money funds should be so boring that they put investors to sleep. And the cash entrusted to a money fund is your reserve resource that you expect no matter what. This is definitely not money to take risks risk with, and that is exactly how it should be managed. Well, the reserve fund invested in a significant amount of Lehman debt. So when Lehman fell, the reserve fund broke the buck. Um, 2008 also witnessed the demise of Merrill Lynch with a 15,000-person brokerage staff. It had to be rescued by Bank of America, and it was later revealed that Bank of America was eventually forced to acquire Merrill Lynch because of our government's fears the entire system would collapse. Okay, our response most recently has been the Dodd-Frank Act, whose mission is to promote transparency in the capital markets. Uh, I teach securities uh, regulation in law school. One would think that's a sophisticated audience. I ask them, how many of you know what a swap is? Which is one of those 27 terms. Uh, three hands go in there. How many of you know about the ISDA agreement for swaps? And there are no hands in there. The ISDA agreement for swaps is the most commonly used contract in the world. And I'm not going to ask how many of you have heard of it. <laughs> but if this level of audience is not aware of what Dodd-Frank's mission is to promote transparency in the capital markets, it's reflective of our ignorance as a society. You know, I told you $300 trillion is out there right now under these agreements. Uh, listen, I could continue. Um, Dodd-Frank has tried to address properly uh, the United States' component into the capital markets and to try and prevent things that have caused fraud in the past. What do you think's happened? We've had our SEC and our CFTC been being unable to agree about concurrent jurisdiction over the problems they're supposed to decide. We've had years of delay in implementing rules. There's something that Dodd-Frank tries to prevent, which is the too-big-to-fail bank, and it's called a systemically important financial institution, CIFI. And FSOC, this Financial Stability Oversight Council, has regulated these financial institutions and made them CIFIs, as expected. But FSOC has also started to make insurance companies CIFIs. And as a result, we now have legal scholars and lobbyists battling against the SIFI designation. And the American Enterprise Institute has come out and said the fear is that FSOC is going to re regulate anything with one billion in assets, which would be your mutual fund. And there's a fight about it, and it's not over. Uh, we're almost toward the end, so let's talk a little bit about Bernie Madoff. Um, Take a moment and juxtapose in your minds the fact that Bernie Madoff confessed 
in December 2008 to stealing $17 billion over 20 years with the fact that he was elected CEO of NASDAQ. In 1991, when I was a break, he was re-elected in 1993. Uh, yes, he's in jail for 110 years. But can our system have been working properly when he did this for decades? Madoff's confession was followed by the revelation of the Stanford Ponzi scheme, which was only $7 billion. There were 17,000 victims. I read this morning another Ponzi scheme has been uncovered. So getting to the funeral parlor director way in which I'm delivering this at the end, uh, let's just go through the most recent highlights. Uh, in 2013, top traded currency traders at a dozen banks were accused of using closed network chat rooms with names like the Cartel, the Bandits Club, and the Mafia to share confidential client information and rates for up to 160 currencies. Leading financial institutions and their former employees have been criminally prosecuted for fixing LIBOR to accommodate their clients' requests. Uh, a farmer giant was recently uh, required to pay $688 million for not disclosing the test results for one of its drugs. U.S. bribery enforcement had a record year in 2014 with an average of $157 million in settlements, and I think 10 over $100 million. Cybersecurity prosecutions have brought, been brought for theft of trading data. Uh, this past January, a compliance officer, a compliance officer, pled guilty to fraud and gave evidence against the firm partners in a $554 million scheme to steal from institutional investors to buy horse farms, cars, and a trove of collectible stuffed teddy bears. Last week, Standard & Poor's, the rating agency, agreed to pay $1.5 billion to resolve the Justice Department's charges that it defrauded investors by knowingly issuing inflated credit ratings for mortgage-backed securities sold six years ago because S&P was afraid of the impact on its own revenues. And to date, about $24 billion has been paid by banks and other firms to settle government actions involving those securities. So, uh, to close, uh, fraud is regrettably a part of the human condition. The efforts to limit it by legislation typically follow crises of global proportions and it takes years to incubate and longer to be implemented and enforced. The punishments are usually monetary. They tried to indict Arthur Anderson, the accounting firm. What happened? The innocent partners fled. They went to other accounting firms. So by the time the indictment was vacated by the U.S. Supreme Court, there was no Arthur Anderson. Since then, prosecutors won't indict companies. Instead, the usual course of business is to get the charge and then ultimately enter into a deferred prosecution agreement, or DPA, in which the company agrees to hire compliance officers and make sure this won't happen again. Um, Enforcement budgets for our prosecutors make it an uneven match. Here's a number. What would you guess is the average cost of a white-collar individual criminal defense through the first trial? It's over $12 million, the average cost. You'd think that is huge. 
Contrast that with the fact that between 2000 and 2008, the top five Bear Stearns executives took home more than $1.4 billion in cash, which exceeded the annual budget of the SEC. Uh, some contend fraud is the most profitable business in Wall Street. Boski told the business school class at Berkeley, greed is healthy. A leading class, plaintiff's class action lawyer advertises, as long as, we're, as long as there's greed, we're in business. Uh, what do we need? Um, of course, we need more resources to battle the landscape of financial engineering and complex instruments. We need more transparency and disclosure. We probably need more global regulatory agreements and enforcement, but will fraud ever disappear? Uh, not likely. So, on that happy note, <laughs> thank you for attending and staying awake.